animal sacrifices. We know that uh, the avoid of Karbanis, the service of sacrifices, is one of the most, um, one of the things concerning which Chazal say the world stands on it, the world is, depends on it. And the question becomes, what's the deal with bringing Karbanis in the absence of a base Hamikdash? This came up actually this week, um, somewhat in the Rambam study, both in the cycle of one parak and in the study of three prokim, as we'll see soon. So I figured it was an appropriate week to discuss it. Uh, Akiva, would you be so kind as to close the sliding door? So, first of all, one of the references, one of the questions is, Historically, were were karbanas ever brought in absence of the base of Mikdash, meaning in between the destruction of the first and the second temple, and after the destruction of the second temple, did they ever bring karbanas? The Gemara tells a story which was quoted in, in which the Rambam quotes the, the the halacha aspect of this, the halachic ramifications of this story in the laws of Kiddush Achredish in chapter four, which the study of one cycle, one parak. A day of Rambam studied this past week um, that says as follows Rabbi Gamliel was sitting on a step in the Harabais. And Yochanan Sofer, the scribe Yochanan, um, we have our own scribe Yochanan, but this was a different scribe Yochanan, was standing in front of him and he had three pages prepared, three letters. And Rabbi Gamliel told the scribe to. Right, send these three letters to one of them to Bavel, the other one to Madai, and the other to all the other exiles of Israel. And to write, Shloim Chan you should peace unto you. And we are letting you know that because the birds are still young and the sheep are still soft, are still young, so we need to give them extra time. And the time of the spring has not yet come. Therefore, it has been agreed upon in, to, to, my, to myself and my colleagues to add 30 days onto this year's calendar. What that means is like this. Nowadays, we have a fixed calendar. But in this time, Rabbi Gamliel is the Nasi. He's the prince. He's the leader of the, of the Sanhedrin. And they were still at a time when they were being when they were sanctifying the new moon based on the testimony of two witnesses. And then there was also the question of a leap year. Now, now in our fixed calendar, we have a very fixed system. Seven out of every 19 years are leap years, and it's all preset. But in the day, time when they were Mekadosh al every year the Bezdin, before they would sanctify the new moon on the month for the month of Adar, they would publicize which is, is next Adar, is the coming month, the only Adar, and the following month will then be Nisan. Or are we calling the next month other one and there will be an extra 30 days, which at least nowadays we call other one and other two. So in this particular instance, Ramagam Leal was notifying the, all the communities throughout the world that because the sheep are not yet uh, uh, too young or too, too soft, whatever it is, and also the birds, therefore we are postponing Pesach and he says the time of the spring has not yet come, so there's no need to, to rush. So we're postponing Pesach another 30 days. We're adding a second month of Adar. Now the Rambam, when he quotes this halacha, he says that this the, the, the sheep and the birds, that wouldn't have been a reason in and of itself to, put, to add another month. That was just used as a sa'ad, as, to, 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 um, as an additional reason the, the primary reason was the fact that it wasn't yet the spring. Now, this Gemara was presented to Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who is the father of the Chacham Tzvi, I think, or the son of the Chacham Tzvi. And the son. <laughs> yeah, so Rabbi Yaakov Emden lived a few hundred years ago. And the correspondent of the of Yaakov Emden was asking him, surely this was after the destruction of the temple. So this would seem to imply that they were already bringing Karbanis 
that they were sorry that they were still bringing carbonus after the destruction of the second temple. Now, essentially, what this boils, what this discussion, what this argument boils down to is which Rebbein Gamliel was this? There were, I think, three Rebbein Gamliels. The means Rebbein Gamliel, then his grandson was Rebbein Gamliel, and his grandson was Rebbein Gamliel, but. Specifically, the question, and 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 in the truth of Rebekah and those, and in the writings of those who discuss this afterwards, it basically boils down to what the correct girsa of the Gemara is over there. Is it talking about um, Rebbe Gam, the one who we call Rebbe Gamliel of Yavne? For those who were attending the Gemara class before Corona, we discussed the whole story of Rebbe Gamliel, who was the Nasi, and he did something which is the, the, the so he humiliated Rabbi Yeshua. And then he was demoted, and they promoted, they they put Abelazib and Azariah in his place, and he had the miracle of growing the eighteen strands of white hair in his beard overnight. And then Rabbi Gamliel was reinstated, and the end of the in the final arrangement was that Rabbi Gamliel had three weeks, and he had one week, or he had two weeks, and he had one week, whatever it was. Okay, so that was Rabbi Gamliel the Yavna. Rabbi Gamliel of Yavna was the Nasi after he was alive during the time of the Beis Hamikdash, but he was the Nasi. He was the, the leader of the Sanhedrin after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Um, the Rabbi Gamliel Hazokin, who's the grandfather of Rabbi Gamliel of Yavne, was already was 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 um, was in the time of the Beis Hamikdash. Sorry. So the person who posed this question to Rabbi Yaakov Emden, he was convinced based on his proofs. That the Gemara is talking about Gamliel the Yavne, and therefore, and therefore he um, he uh, he he said this seems to be proof that they were bringing the Karm Pesach after the destruction of the Temple. Now, those who disagree with him, they the Maratzchayes and others, they try to um, strengthen or establish the gears in the Gemara that actually it's talking about the grandfather of Gamliel the Yavne, Gamliel Hazaken. And um, in that case, this this Gemara doesn't even pose any precedent to the idea of bringing Karbanos after the time of Beis Hamikdash. So this this is the Gemara that this is the first, perhaps the first glimpse that we have that maybe there is room to bring Karbanos nowadays. Uh, even if you say you can bring carbonus nowadays, we don't necessarily know which carbonus. We know Rabbi Gamliel is talking about making the year a leap year, so he's talking about Pesach, but he also mentions the birds. Um, birds, the, the, the important, that's very important because in the discussion about this throughout the ages, the, 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 the discussion primarily revolves about carbonus tzibur, the public offering. So there was the daily carbon tomid, which was carbon for the whole community, for the tzibur, etc. The birds were only brought as a uh, as a carbon as a, as a carbon of an individual. There could be many reasons why somebody would bring a bird carbon. Most commonly it was for a woman who had given birth or for a woman who had, had was a zava, which was an unusual menstrual cycle, or there could have been other reasons for certain transgressions that a person did, but birds are not brought by the tzibur, by the community, only by individuals. So from the fact that Rabbi Gamliel mentions birds over here, it would suggest that he's not talking about bringing kabbalas in the absence of a base of Mikdash, because even those who do allow bringing kabbalas in the absence of a base of Mikdash are only referring to Kabbalah's Tzibur, to communal offerings, with the exception of carbon Pesach, which even though that's an individual offering, every individual brings a carbon Pesach, um, it's considered a carbon Tzibur as far as this is concerned, and we'll, we'll get to carbon Pesach soon. But, so that's one of the problems with this Gemara, that though the Maretz says, how could you use this Gemara as a precedent to say that you could bring Kabbalah's, even in absence of a Beis HaMikdash, certainly, um, So in mentioning birds, it's obvious that he's talking even about Kabbalah's Yachid, and therefore you have to say one of two things. Either you have to say that this was Ram Gamliel Hazakin, and this occurred in the time of Beis Hamikdash, in which case the whole passage of the Gemara is irrelevant to our discussion. Or Rabbi Yaakov Emden suggests another reason that Ram Gamliel was um, optimistic and hoping that the Beis Hamikdash would very speedily be rebuilt, 
and in which case, if they delay Pesach for another month, then the sheep will, will will have time to mature, and in the meantime, perhaps the base of Rikdash will be rebuilt, and we'll be able to bring carbonus, but not necessarily that carbonus will, will not they could bring the carbon Pesach in absence of the base of Mikdash. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Amdam himself prefers the first reason. It's also important to note that the Rambam, when he talks about, when he introduces the concept of Mashiach, and the, in the second to last chapter of the whole book of Yad HaZaka, he writes that Malach uh, HaMashiach, what's he going to do? He says uh, he's going to reestablish the kingdom of David, and all the mitzvahs will return in his day, and will bring Karbanas. The Rambam seems to imply that Mashiach is going to reinstate Karbanas, and that it won't, it can't happen before Mashiach. But those who are pro the Karbanas without the temple will say that the Rambam is referring to the individual Karbanas. For those, you have to wait for the base of Mikdash. But the Karbanas Tibur, the communal offerings, those do not need to wait for the base of Mikdash. Um, those are individual. Yeah, those are all personal. The, the communal ones are the daily ones, the carbon tamid, the musaf ones, the shabbos, the shred, the shyamtev, etc. So, so though, even those stopped? Well, that's the discussion. Was there any continuation? There certainly, I think it's quite obvious that it, was, that it wasn't continued on a daily meeting, considered on a daily, that, that wasn't possible. But perhaps at times when the occupying uh, government was friendlier, they could have gotten away with certain th- with certain things. They certainly couldn't have gotten away with bringing carbonus, multiple carbonus every every day. But the question is, was there any continuation of carbonus in absence of the base of Mikdash? Yeah, we're going to get to the location in a moment. There's also another story in the Gemara, which talks about Rabbi Gamliel telling his servant Tavi. Tavi was a famous story, a servant of Rabbi Gamliel, slave of Rabbi Gamliel, numerous stories throughout Shas about Tavi, um, and there's one story where the Mishnah says that Rabbi Gamliel sent Tavi as an agent, as a messenger, to go and shech the Karm Pesach for him, to bring his Karm Pesach to the base of Mikdash. And again, Rabbi Yaakov Emden is quite convinced that that's referring to Rabbi Gamliel the Yavne, and that this happened after the destruction. Um, those who argue, those who are against Karbonus Bismarazeh, um, they will either say that that's talking about a different Rabbi Gamliel, or even if it is Rabbi Gamliel the Yavne, it was earlier on in his life before he assumed the leadership in his younger years when the base of Mikdash um, was still standing. Now, um, okay, the next, there is another source. This is a very important source, which, as we'll see soon, the Rebbe Rebbe had in, um, because a little bit of history, a Lubavitch history. In 1967, there was the miraculous victory of the Six-Day War, in which the IDF secured uh, sovereignty over the Temple Mount. The following year, on the last day of Pesach, on Achron Shal Pesach, 1968, the Rebbe spoke about the fact that because, according to one opinion, there is a possibility to bring a carbon Pesach nowadays, and because of the severity of carbon Pesach being kares, therefore people should leave Jerusalem for Pesach Sheni. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, some mitzvahs in the Torah are punishable by kares, by excision, being cut off, which the Rambam says meant that a person died before the age of 50 or 60, or that he died without children. And uh, famously, the Alter Rebbe Nigar Satruva speaks about why nowadays we see people transgressing kares prohibitions and yet living many long, happy years. Okay, now any Avera that has the punishment of Karis, the Mishnah says there's, 60, there's 36 Averas, um, desecrating Shabbos, incest, many others. Because of that, um, those Averas are considered extra severe. Now, all of the Averas which incur Karis are negative commandments. Again, desecrating Shabbos, incest, idolatry, all those type of things, with the exception of two. There are two positive commandments 
that failure to do them, um, for, to, to fulfill them, incurs karis. One is circumcision, and the second is Pesach. So, what the Rebbe was suggesting was that because according to Rebbe Chiel, Rebbe Hananel of Paris, Paris, um, we can bring Karbanas nowadays, we're going to see what this, what this Rebbe Chiel of Paris says in a moment. So, even though the Rebbe says, Rabbu Ha'isrim, the majority uh, opinion d- disagrees with this opinion of Rabbi Chiel of Paris, and we'll see soon why Rabbi Chiel of Paris is a lone voice. But because such an opinion does exist, um, and because this is not just any mitzvah, this is a Karim Pesach, which is Chi of Karis, it's, a, it's punishable by Karis in, in neglect to do so. So nowadays, after the victory of the Six Day War, where we have access to the Harabais, and according to Rabbi Chiel of Paris, we would be chayv karis if we if we are don't do it, but we can't actually do it because of all the reasons why we, all the opinions who disagree with Rabbi Chiel, as we'll see in a moment. So therefore, the Rebbe suggested that everybody should leave Yerushalayim. Now, when it comes to the carbon Pesach, um, there is a special din called derech chayka that if somebody is um, more than fifteen mil, which is about fifteen kilometers outside of Yerushalayim they are exempt from Pesach. And therefore, the Rebbe says, everybody should leave Yerushalayim. And in this case, the Rebbe was talking on the last day of Pesach. So it had a, the first opportunity to do so was af, on the on era of Pesach in 1968, because the Six-Day War was in June of 1967, June or July, right? So the rabbi didn't address this at all before Pesach. The rabbi mentioned it, and if I bring it on the last day of Pesach, concerning Pesach Sheni. We know the halacha is that if somebody misses Pesach, the first Pesach, then there is the makeup Pesach a month later. So the rabbi was suggesting that people should leave Yerushalayim for the second Pesach. Okay, we'll get more to the rabbis, to that whole discussion, the, the, the post-60 war application of all of this later on. Um, so now, let's see what Rabbi Yechiel of Paris says. Now, the Bechil of Paris is quoted in a sefer called Kafti Veferach. Kafti Veferach, the author, his name is Reb Ishturi Haparchi. The Ishturi, Ishturi Haparchi. Um, he was the first, uh, he lived, let's see when he lived. It was in the time of the Rishonim. So he was quite a while ago. Let's say between 700 and 1,000 years ago. Um, and he was one of the first people who went to try and, you know, without the evidence and the study of archaeology and everything, he spent a lot of time traveling to Israel and analyzing things and trying to figure out many, many things about the history about Nach. So, for example, in Sefer Yehoshua and Shoftim, you have all the lists of different cities, dozens of cities. He tried to figure out where all these cities are. And uh, you had uh, the borders of Israel that are described in Parshas Masay and in, in the book of Yehoshua. He tried to figure out exactly where they are. And he is the pioneer of this discussion, even, even contemporarily. Now, contemporarily, we have a lot more resources than he did. We have, we, have the, we have archaeology. He didn't have any of that. But still, much of what he wrote and said still, it, it, for the, um, it still carries a lot of weight in these discussions. And there's numerous halachic ramifications. Just for example, it's coming up next year is the Shemitah year. So produce that grows within the boundaries of Israel, within the borders of Israel, has the status of Shemitah. Where is this? For example, one of the biggest controversies when it comes to Shemitah is where exactly is the halachic southern border of Israel, right? Um, so the Kafti Veferach is one of the important sources when it comes to this. So, um, in Kaftev Ferech, he records a discussion that he had with an individual by the name of Reb Baruch in Yerushalayim, that Reb Hananel of Parish, Paris, um, and some say it was Reb Yechiel of Paris, whoever this person was, that he wanted to come to Yerushalayim in the year 5017, 5017, now we're 5780. So this is uh, just about 750 years ago. So 750 years ago, Reb Hananel of Paris wanted to come to Israel and bring Kerbonus. And Reb, the author of Kaftu Farah records that I didn't get a chance to ask him, what will we do about the fact that we are all Tobe and Ono Kohen Miyuchus and we don't have a Kohen Miyuchus. So those are the first two issues, which we don't have an answer to. We know that Rabbi Chiyol of Paris wanted to do this, 
the Kaftav of Farakh records that he doesn't know what Rabbi Chil would have done with the following two questions. Number one, we are all tummy. We are all, because we don't have the ashes of the red heifer, so we are all, everyone has pretty much come in contact within, yeah, it doesn't mean that you've touched a dead body. If you've come within six feet of a grave, then you're tummy. And we don't have access to a paraduma. So that's one question. The second question is, and that's based on the assumption um, which is certainly the simple reading of the Gemara and the Rambam, that we that in order to have in order to have the absolute status of a kohen um, to be able, as far as biblical things are concerned, to be able to consume teruma, to be able to bring karbanas on a mizbeach, any of those things which the Torah mandates a kohen, you need to have a kohen meyuchas. You need to have a kohen whom we have. Um, absolute proven sort of his his family tree his geneal- genealogy that he traces himself to Aaron Akoyen. and nowadays all the Koyanim that are nowadays considered Koyanim are only Koyani Chazaka and so which means that we consider them Koyanim because they have a Chazaka they have a sort of a status quo that they are Koyanim and that's good enough to allow them to Dukhan and it's even good enough to allow them to get the first Aliyah and any of those things but it's not good enough for them to be serving in the temple. So the Kaftar of Farah says, I didn't get a chance to ask, Reb, or, or sorry, Reb Baruch, tell, this Reb Baruch from Mishraim tells the author of the Kaftar of Farah that I did not get a chance to ask Rabbi Chil of Paris what he would have done with these two problems, but I know that Rabbi Chil of Paris wanted to do this, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. There, By the way, sorry, yes? There are people that can price their Kohanim back that far? Are there anyone nowadays who can? Um, that's a kind of a discussion. In it. Uh, th- th- there's, there's a lot of literature on that. Lema- the, 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 common, the, the, the common opinion nowadays is that all Kohanim are only considered Kohanim Chazaka, and that when Mashiach comes, Eliyahu Hanavi will sort of reinstate who is uh, confirm the kohen. By the way, there's another big problem with the the whole status of kohen now, which became pre- very relevant in the last 50, 60, 70 years, and that is that there are many people who are cons- who, who are considered kohenim. Well, right? Why are they kohenim? Because my father was a kohen, my grandfather was a kohen. But in, because so many people were had left an observant way of life, and now in this generation, the resurgence of the Baal Shuvah movement becomes two problems. Number one, if the father is not from, if he's not Shomer Shabbos, so he's not a kosher witness, right? So it, when, when you have a not kosher witness, it's not that we don't believe him, it's just that Torah doesn't consider him a kosher witness, right? If somebody, if you would have somebody who's non-religious, a witness as a, a, for a wedding ceremony, it would be an invalid wedding, not because we don't believe him, that the chassan put the ring on the kala's finger just because he's an invalid witness. So one question becomes, if the father was not religious, does, does the fact that he says, that he, quote, testifies that he's a Kohen, do we reckon, with, does, is that um, submissible evidence, admissible evidence? That's one question. The other question is that, um, and this, this is not across anyone who's not religious, but certainly can be a, a big problem, a big concern in many cases. Um, is that if the even if the even if we verify 100% and we believe the father that he is a Kohen, if the mother of the Kohen or, or the wife of the Kohen or the mother of the Kohen had at any point in her life before getting married to this Kohen lived with a non Jewish man, right? So she was promiscuous in college or anything like that then her children, then she may not marry a Kohen. And if she does, the children are considered halalim. They are not kosher Kohens. So I actually personally know of somebody who became from, and he was a Kohen, and he used to duchen. And um, then uh, he found out about his mother's lifestyle when he was, when she was a single girl, and he stopped, and he's no longer a Kohen. Uh, he never was. He just, he thought he was, but he's actually not. He thought he was because his father is a Kohen, um, right? And um, in fact, he, he, he the, the, I mean, there's, there's dozens and hundreds of people like that out there. And this particular individual that I know is actually married to a woman who a Kohen would not be allowed to marry. He's married to a convert. Um, 
But um, anyway, so that, that, those are the first two issues we have over here is if we've got to bring carbonus nowadays, what are we going to do with the fact that we don't have a claim meyuchas? And what are we going to do with the fact that we are all impure? Now, in the years, um, okay. Throughout the generations of the exile, there has been many, um, many different governments ruling over the land of Israel. There was the Turks. There was a brief time, which we're going to talk about, which uh, which the following occurred in when the when Egypt was ruling over Israel. Then it went back to the Turks. Then I mean, I'm not exactly familiar with all the history. Then it was the British until uh, 1948. Now, in the year, just a moment, let me find this page, the right page over here. There was a Rav, a very, perhaps, he can be called the, the original pioneer of any Zionist movement, religious Zionist movement. There was a big Rav, a Tamil by the name of Ribtzi Hirsch Kalisher, Kalisher, who was a student of Rebbe Kiva Eger. Just a moment. Um, Mtsuyash Kalisher was a Talmud of Kivega. Kivega is one of the most prominent Tachrenim, and his uh, both in his commentary on the Gemara and in his Chuvas and his halachic rulings. And he, Mtsuyash Kalisher, corresponded about this with Kivega, and then Kivega handed it over to his son in law, also a very important Paisak, the Chasam Sefer. Um, Mtsuyash Kalisher outlived both of them, and he published the Sefer called Rishas Tsirn. Um, he published the Sefer, um, this is obviously a reprint of it, but he passed, he published it in the year Tofresh Chof Beis, that is uh, 1862. He published this book, which was after the passing both of the Bekivega and the Chesam Sefer. And basically, Rebbe Tzuyosh Kalisher believed, and he demonstrated this based on his understanding of numerous statements of Chazal and Gemara and Midrashim, etc. That Mashiach can't come and won't come just, quote, out of nowhere. The way Mashiach has to come is that the Jewish people have to, on their own, reinstate the service of the of the temple, not to build the temple, but reinstate the service of the Karbanis. And, um, and in so doing, that will already invoke the beginning of the process, which will bring Eliyahu Hanavi, which will bring Mashiach, which will complete this, the, 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 the building of the base of Mikdash, and... Um, and, uh, and and the full and the full redemption. So, yes. So he 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 believed that it is incumbent upon the Jewish people, and that it is a necessary component to the process of the revelation of Mashiach for us to go and start bringing kabbalas. And this is what he started communicating with to Rabbi Kiva Eger, to his Rebbe, and then following after some sefer, and also to and later published this book um, called Rishas Tzien. Now it's interesting that part of in nine in the year Tov Kof Tzadik Vav, that's eighteen twenty or eighteen thirty six in the year eighteen thirty six, he wrote a letter to Baron Rothschild, Angel Rothschild, who was the uh, very wealthy, affluent and influential person in the he lived in Frankfurt in Germany, and he was throughout the world one of the most influential people in the world. And one of the most wealthy, and he himself was a a God-fearing, observant Jew, Angel Baron Rothschild, and uh, he was a tremendous Balzstocker. He gave a lot of charity. Actually, Baron Rothschild died in the year um, eighteen twelve. No, it can't be. Sorry, that's his father. He died in the year eighteen fifty-five, um, and he never had any children. But in the year like I said, in 1895, in, sorry, 1795, no, what am I, Tzadik Vav is 20, 1820, 30, 1835, 1835, 1836, um, Reb, Reb Tzikalisha wrote a letter to Baron Rothschild, 
a very long letter, in which he goes, he starts off the letter by going through all the halachic. Um, first, he, go, he starts his letter with demonstrating his his opinion, again, based on the Midrashim, etc., that this is the way Mashiach has to come. Then he goes to address his the, the halachic questions. And then he con- concludes the letter by basically asking Baron Rothschild to basically go to the, um, the, the ruler of Egypt at the time, which was... Um, the ruler of Egypt at the time was come on. Muhammad Ali. From the who who uh, was the ruler of Egypt from 1832 to 1840. Right. And he basically pleads with Baron Rothschild to buy Israel to buy the land of Israel. Then he says, if not the whole land of Israel, at least Jerusalem, if not Jerusalem, at least the Temple Mount. And if not buy it, at least get permission for it, for, for uh, get the Egyptian monarch to give us permission to use it. And he really um, tries very hard to take. We do not have any record of uh, Byron Rothschild ever responding to this letter. And as the authors or uh, producers of this book point out, that although Byron Rothschild was well known for his um, generosity in charity, he is not well known for supporting any causes in Israel per se. Which we do not know. Now, actually, they produced over here. I'll show you in the back of this book. They have a copy, facsimile. Uh, uh, whatever you say. This is the handwriting, um, the letter of Reb Tzvi to Baron Rothschild. Yeah. So uh, very interesting letter. Um, you don't have to read it from here. You could, in the book, they actually have it typed up. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So, what are the, what are the primary... Oh, by the way, a, a very, another very important source... Okay, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, basically, there's four, there's four issues that have to be addressed about bringing Kabbalists nowadays. Two of, the, two of them we've mentioned. Um, well, five issues, really. Two of them we've mentioned, um, having a legitimate kayan and the fact that we are all impure. Another problem is making the big day kahuna, making the garments that a kohen needs to wear. Um, we'll see soon. Another is identifying the correct place for the mizbeach. And another is whether or not we can... The, the 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 place of the mizbech, the place of the mizbech, retains its sanctity nowadays. You know, you have to bring a carbon in the place in the place of the base of English, even though there's no structure of the base of English. Does does that geographical location still retain its sanctity? So, um, the Rambam writes in the Rambam writes in. Um, that three prophets um, two important quotes in the Raman Number one is in chapter two in, 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 he writes that the place of the Mizbech is absolutely mechuvan. It's um, it's exact. And it's the play he writes. That's the exact place where the where Adam Rishon was created from, and that's the place where the Akedah took place, or the binding of Isaac. And he says that when the Jewish people came up from the Doyla, that means when the Second Commonwealth, when Ezra and his colleagues Chagus Chaim Alachi came up from Bavel to build the second, and they built the second temple. There were three prophets, and one of them testified that one may bring Karbanis even in absence of the base of Mikdash, right? And the other was that one may bring carbonus. That and the other and, and the second one it says there's three, but the two that are relevant are the second one testified um, for the where the exact location of the mizbeach is. So on the one hand, we know that we, according to the Rambam, we can technically bring carbonus even in the absence of a base amikdash, but we also know that we need to know exactly where the mizbeach is. Um, the Rambam writes later on in Hilchus Beis Abchir and Perek Vav. He writes that the sanctity of the Beis Hamikdash remains, and even though the structure of Hashemoyes Mikdash Sheikhim, the pasuk says, even if it's destroyed, the sanctity 
still remains. Um, and however, the Ravid, who we know the Ravid is always the one who argues with the Rambam, the Ravid writes that um, no, the sanctity of the base Mikdash does not remain, and um, there's no there's no sanctity in that place anymore. We mentioned this Ravid before, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we had the classes about uh, prophecy in Halacha, so one of the relevant sources was this particular Ravid, where he says, how do I know that nowadays there's no sanctity to the base of Mikdash? This is what I was revealed to me um, in private communication by Hashem, basically a free translation. Um, and um, elsewhere, the Rambam writes, um, when concerning the law of Hadassim, where he writes that we had by divine inspiration, we know the halacha of this case, and we discussed that at great length um, some, some weeks ago. So this is one of the times where the Ravid some 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 don't take the Ravid at face value. Some say the Ravid doesn't mean to say literally that he, this was divine inspiration, um, but some others do take it literally. And again, we discussed that um, in the past. Now the irony is the Rambam is saying so. According to the Rambam, as long it seems that if we could address all of the other issues, um, we would be able to bring a carbon nowadays because even though there's no misbeach. Mis- mis- even though there's no base on Mikdash, the sanctity still remains. The irony is, and this Rebzviyosh Kalisher makes this point, that you could do so, there's nothing to lose according to the Ravid. What's the pro- Why can't I bring a carbon over here in Chicago? Because once the base on Mikdash was sanctified, it became forbidden to bring a carbon anywhere else outside of the base of Mikdash. Rebzviyosh Kalisher argues that according to the Ravid, there, there would taka be no point in bringing a carbon nowadays, but there also wouldn't be anything wrong with it. You wouldn't be, the, right? If you bring, if the base of English has its sanctity and, and you bring a carbon in the wrong place, so then then that's also a fee of cars, actually, yeah? That's a, that's a severe prohibition. But but if, he argues that according to the Ravid, where there's no sanctity of the base of English, so then at least you have nothing to lose. So according to the Rambam, there's everything to gain. And he argues that according to the Ravid, there's nothing to lose. Um, as you can imagine, many would say that no, that even according to the Ravid, even though it doesn't retain its sanctity, but the prohibition still remains. And of course, every, 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 one, every, every single one of the points that we're mentioning now, just sort of giving an overview of the topics, you can imagine that in all the, um, the polemics and literature about this, there's much debate about all of these points. Well, they think are they kind of bring to the temple mount right now, or yes. Okay. Um, in this discussion, Parsha, we're uh, talking about um, uh, when uh, when uh, uh, when uh, uh, Moses was brought in as a basket and put into uh, the river. There's an argument that um, uh, it couldn't have been put into the because the, the river Nile um, was uh, uh, considered um, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, um, that because of um, when the Egyptians considered the, the river and um, but then it said that um, uh, that when when the water came down, you know, the cleanse herself, it was also a spiritual cleansing. She was, uh, uh, and because of that, then the Nile could be used for that. Okay, so my point is that how can we talk about bringing to the Temple Mount when right this minute it's being used for another religious purpose, another religion's purpose? Yeah, so there's no question that the fact that the Temple Mount is. Um, defiled i mean that's part of the gullus that's part of the khurban and in fact that becomes the there the, were those who argued that after the establishment of the state and certainly after the victory of the six-day war that the text of the bracha of nachim on tishabav where we talk about the desolate and destroyed destruct destroyed city where we should change that bracha but um, the majority of halachic of post were against the change 
And one of the points they made, I think Rabbi Yosef makes this point, that what do you mean? Like how could, what could be more destruction than a mosque on the, on the place of the Kodesh HaKadoshim, right? That's, a, that's part of the Khurban. And, um, and um, that's a big, that's something that we, that Mashiach will, only Mashiach can rectify. But that doesn't necessarily, as much as that disturbs us, it doesn't exempt us if there is a halachic obligation and possibility to bring carbonus, then we can't that, that we can't circumvent that just because it's uncomfortable because there's a mosque over there. Well, is it a question of being uncomfortable or is it a question of being this it cannot be accepted but, at that place because it has been defined? No, the Rambam is arguing that no matter what happens on the place, even the, the, the geographic location of the Beis HaMikdash and of the Mizbeach retains its sanctity. Um, now, so, the, so the, uh, let's move on to this thing. So we've spoken about whether or not the, the sanctity of the Mizbeach nowadays, we said the Rambam says there is. Now the second problem is to identify the exact location of the Mizbeach, which like the Rambam says is very precise. Now, this is a very complicated um, discussion. There are four or five opinions as to exactly where the, how, the Temple Mount. If you look for further research, if you look on, um, what's that website called? Uh, where they have the JLI stuff, uh, Torah, um, Torah, not Torah, is it Torah.net? No. Um, anyway, Google it. Um, the, 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 there's a, there's a, at the, one of the JLI retreats, there was a Rabbi Mendy Blau who did a very nice presentation on all the different opinions of where exactly the Beis HaMikdash and the Mizbeach was. Um, and we actually had a few, a couple of years ago, Rabbi Shechter from the Masifta came here and did a little bit of a class on that too. Um, but, um, but anyway, Rabbi Tzvihosh Kalisha says, well, we know where the Western wall of the temple is. And so we know, and we know the measurements based on the Rambam and based on the Mishnah Yisamid is exactly where the, where the where the Mizbeach is, and therefore we could figure out the exact spot of the Mizbeach. I'm not going to get into all the details right now, but suffice it to say that um, any and again, like I said, there's that video you could watch. You could see all the different complications. Any which way you go, there's always going to be other opinions as to where um, the Mizbeach. It, it, where you know, first of all, the Western Wall itself. Uh, and Rabbi probably didn't know this, but now that we have the archaeology, we know the Western Wall itself is hundreds of feet long. Um, so where exactly in the West? There's so many different possibilities of wh wh where, you know, where to figure out where things are that it becomes very um, difficult to, 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 to use the coastal as an exact um, uh, how do you call it, uh, measuring spot. Um, an, an alternative suggestion was made to use the Evan Ashesia. That means in the mosque, there's a rock, which um, many consider to be the rock that was in the Holy of Holies, and um, to measure from there. Again, it becomes difficult. One of the main difficulties is that the rock that's there is 18 by 13 meters, which is much bigger than the dimensions of the Kedesh HaKadoshim. So is that the rock that was in the Evan Ashesia? Is it not? Bottom line is that, again, this is a multiple way machoikas, but there is no clear definitive uh, uh, decision which everyone can agree on as to where the Mizbeach is. There is some discussion, actually, it's interesting. If, is it possible to get all the opinions together? Again, the Mizbeach was 32 amos long and wide, which is 32 amos is uh, about 50 feet, right? It's a very big structure. So can you, can you narrow it down to a particular couple of feet, which everyone would agree that that was part of the Mizbeach, right? So that, that becomes part of the discussion. Again, you know, complicated whether or not you can actually do that, and even if you can. Um, the second temple was larger. The yeah, it was the second. It was larger. Did the dimensions change, or was the Mizbeach the exact same spot? It was in the, no, well, both. It was the Mizbeach in the second temple was in the exact same spot as the first temple, plus an additional, um, I think it was two amos or whatever it was, right. right? So, right, so we need to find that spot. Okay, 
Um, so that's uh, another one of the problems. Now the next problem is uh, okay. So the, the, the easiest um, problem to resolve, and um, we also had this in the three in the, in the Rambam last week of the three parak cycle. Um, that tuma duchuya betzibur. That for communal sacrifices such as the daily offerings and for the carbon pesach, um, tuma is duchuya. That means. And if the majority of the community, or as the fact is nowadays, the entire community are impure, atami, so then that overrides, even though in general there's a prohibition to enter the Temple Mount with impurity and there's a prohibition to eat sacrificial meats with impurity, etc., etc. But if everybody is tummy, then that becomes overridden. And so nowadays, because everybody's tummy, and this is the point that Kalisha, one of the points that Psyosh Kalisha makes, and that seems to be quite um, pretty much agreeable to everybody, that indeed nowadays, because everybody is tummy, so it's okay to bring a carbon. Now, then, okay, so we spoke about bringing, uh, uh, finding a kohid miyuchas. Oh, so how do you deal with the kohid miyuchas? So Tzirosh Kalash's approach to the whole thing is that um, actually uh, he tries to demonstrate, and again, he brings proof from this Gemara, you could uh, prove from another Gemara, as, as we know how these discussions go, but Tzirosh Kalash tries to prove and demonstrate that the Kohenim nowadays are good enough and they will continue to be kosher Kohenim even um, um, when we have Kabbalists and all the references in the Gemaras and the Rambams that you need more evidence than that um, was only, he says two things. First of all, in that particular case, the, the, primary, the primary example is Ezra, that when, when Ezra came up, to the second, uh, again, the second commonwealth, so there were many Kayanim who were disqualified because they didn't have the Ksav Miyuchas, they didn't have their uh, the, their family tree to prove it. So he says two things. First of all, there there was a Reya, so that means that the Kayanim had, many of the Kayanim families had intermarried into non-Jewish families in Bavel. So it wasn't just like, oh, go prove your Kayan. There was a reason to assume that they weren't because they hadn't kept the boundaries properly so that that was that was a and b he says and again he demonstrates this that that there's a difference between at a time when there are kayanim who have a biuchas, so then you could choose to say that the kayanim who don't have it are not good enough but in a time when no one has it so then if you're not going to choose then if you're not going to rely on their on on their word that they're kayanim then you're never going to have any kayanim and he proves he says this is not something that Eliyahu Anavi will ever change and he goes again you know that's his whole thing the question then becomes about um, um, the question becomes about big day kahuna. We need to have the the priestly garments, right? So we don't need a kohen gadol. We don't need to worry with the eight garments, but we need the four garments of the kohen hadyot, which are the shirt, the the pants. The hat and the and the belt. Now the biggest problem with all these things is the belt, and there's two problems with the belt. Number one, there's a machloikus that, that means like this: the the belt of the kohen gadol includes included wool and linen, which is shatnas, which that was allowed for that. But there's a machloikus tanaim. Um, there's a machloikus tanaim. Whether or not the kohen, the belt of the kohen headed is the same as the kohen gadol or not. So that's one thing which we have to know whether or not we have a halachic, uh, an absolute ruling for. Um, and the bigger problem because is the problem of techelas, because if we assume that, right? The, oh, so the halacha. Sorry, the halacha is that the uh, we pass in the Rambam paskin that the, the belt of the kohen headed is the same as the belt of the kohen gadol, and because of that, we need to have techelas. Now, nowadays, um, we have pretty much techelas, even though the Chabad custom is not to wear techelas as part of the tzitzis, but that doesn't mean to say that we necessarily, that, 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 that the proofs that have been brought that the, the techelas that they have today um, is, is not the accurate techelas, right? There's no reason to assume otherwise. In fact, just very, very briefly, the history is that there was um, the first person to try and reinstate techelas was the Radzina Rebbe, um, Rabbi Leifer, and his son um, was corresponded about it with the Rebbe Rashab, and he he believed that the trellis was the cuttlefish. And um, 
the Rebbe Hashab writes in his letter where he says that the Rebbe Hashab says that why we would not accept, why we won't institute wearing tchelas in the tzitzis, but he doesn't negate the possibility that the cuttlefish is tchelas. He says it may very well be, and he says, I think I may have even seen a cuttlefish once in an aquarium, and you know, so nowadays it's pretty much been proven beyond any reasonable doubt that the, the I forget the exact name of the snail that's considered the chelazin, which provides the blue for the tchelas. So they would use that. However, of course, in the time of Ripsvihur's Kalisha, they did not have that. So he tried to demonstrate, again, this gets into the whole thing in the Rambam, because in the, when the Rambam talks about tchelas and the laws of tzitzis, he talks about bringing this chelazin fish, etc. When he talks about tchelas in the laws of the priestly garments, he just says tchelas is um, wool that's dyed in the color of the etzim hashemayim of the sky, and it's, you know, he describes the color. So Rabtsir Kalasha argues that the tchelas for the priestly garments doesn't have to be chilos, and it can just be any, as long as it's the same color blue, it doesn't matter what the source of the dye is. So that's how he got around that issue. So how do they, how do they uh, define the actual shade of blue? So the Rambam describes how the, you know it's it's lighter than this and it's darker than that. I guess again I haven't read the whole book, but he he he's convinced that and you know as long as it's it doesn't have to be exact. I mean, blue as long as it's blue, it's fine. Um, okay. Okay, so that's basically the, 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 the a very brief, uh, a, a overview of the whole sort of the history of the topic and the various issues and the various the questions and the possible answers. I just want to uh, um, give you a little bit of an overview of what happened in the 60s and the 70s with the Rebbe's thing about leaving Yerushalayim. Essentially, look, I, before I started reading this in the last few days, I was under the impression that the rabbi gave a hira, an instruction that everybody should leave Yerushalayim. As the more I'm reading it, it doesn't seem that the rabbi actually gave such an instruction in, in, in such strict, strong terms. It was more of a sort of a suggestion. It's something that the rabbi mentioned one time in public on Achim Shopesach of 1968 and never mentioned it again. And um, that was it. Now, in the context of the rabbi Sabrenian, the rabbi wasn't talking about um, he didn't get into all these details. The, the Chiddush, the primary novelty in the Rebbe's suggestion was that it applies to Pesach Sheni as well. And what followed was a very, very interesting correspondence with Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin. Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin was a tremendous Talmud Chacham who was originally from a Chabad origin in Babroisk in, in Belarus. And then he came to Israel and he was the pioneer and the founder of the Encyclopedia Talmudis project, which is a project that the Rebbe very much um, cherished. And, um, and uh, there's dozens, maybe even hundreds, but certainly dozens of letters from the Rebbe to him and back published in Igros Kredish. They had a very, um, very extensive correspondence with the Rebbe. So the Rebbe, after this Sicha of Achim Shepesach 1968, he wrote a letter to the rabbi with five very, you know, again, he was a, he was an absolute genius, Tom Tachem, and he has five very strong questions on the rabbi's, um, on, on this whole idea. Four out of the five questions are questioning the whole notion that this would apply to Pesach Sheni. Um, but he does also ask what, well, maybe three of them. He asks, why only Pesach Sheni? Why not Pesach? And the Rebbe says, yes, absolutely, Pesach as well. So he's, even though the Rebbe didn't speak about it before the first Pesach after the Six-Day War, but, you know, um, and, um, and, the Rebbe, and then he also asks, like, you know, what about all the generations until now? And the Rebbe says, well, the generations until now didn't exactly have the opportunity to do it. It's only in light of the victory of the Six-Day War that this has even come into come into question. It's when you have the possibility, then if you are obligated to do it, there's a chiv karis. If you don't have the possibility, then you don't have um, thing. Now the rabbi made it very clear to him in a number of places in this letter that um, the, the rabbi is not suggesting that the, that we pass in this way. That like Rabbi Chil, the rabbi says, you know, Rabbi it seems 
the vast majority of opinion is that's forbidden to bring Karbanis nowadays, but because the severity of Pesach is a Chi of Kares, so, um, you know, so we, so we should be super duper extra strict. Now, then what happened was in, on Yud Gimel Iyar, it's interesting, Toshin <laughs> Lamed Hay, seven, seven years later, 1975, on Yud Gimel Iyar, which is the day before Pesach Sheni, the rabbi wrote another letter to Rabbi Zavin saying that as has become evident over the time since the Six-Day War, don't forget this was, this, was, this letter was written after the Yom Kippur War, 1975, yeah? But, um, but uh, well, as has become evident that actually the, Jew, the, the Israeli government are very keen to demonstrate that we are allowing the Arabs to live in peace and that we are not um, exercising our authority and dominion over the Temple Mount. So it's become clear that it is no, no longer possible. And so no, no need to leave Yerushalayim anymore. And from then and on, nobody had to leave left Yerushalayim anymore. I, I wonder, I don't know, this letter was dated on the day before Pesach Sheni. I assume it uh, didn't become known until at least a week or so later when the letter arrived in Israel. Be that as it may, one of the one of the questions that, that Rabbi, Rabbi Zevin starts off his letter with is that how do you want um, thousands of uh, people to 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 leave Yerushalayim? Well, and the Rabbi says, well, you know, it's not such a big deal. First of all, uh, it's only for a few hours, and uh, and it's only the people over Bar and Bas Mitzvah. And that's for the first Pesach. For Pesach Sheni, it's only the men because women are obligated to do the first Pesach, but for the second Pesach, women are only optional. So for the first Pesach, everyone will have to leave. For the Pesach Sheni, it'll be the second, only the men, and only for a few hours. And so it's no big deal. And at the very least, the Rebbe says, you know, the Rebbe's not insisting that you must do it. I just think it's a good idea. And at the very least, other people who don't live in Yerushalayim should see to it that they don't come to visit Yerushalayim on those days. Now, as much as the rabbi is saying it's not such a big deal, the author of this article that I was using interviewed some of the people who lived in Yerushalayim at the time, and actually it was a very big deal. First of all, um, if you're talking about Pesach, so that means you can't be in Yerushalayim from midday on Erev Pesach until, until, until the Seder night. Those are the hours of the current Pesach. So if you have family who live in Svas or Kfar Chabad or whatever, who have a big enough home to host you, so then you could pick up your whole family and go and just leave on Erev Pesach in the morning and go for the first day of Pesach and for the Seder night and everything outside Yerushalayim and come back. But if you don't, what are you supposed to do? You know, and he said, he describes there were some families who didn't have any option to do and they would all go down to Moitzah. Can you imagine a whole family on the busiest day of the year, Erev Pesach, finish all your preparations for Yom Tif, burn the Chomets, finish all your preparations for Yom Tif before Chatzos, go down to Moitzah which is, you know, a few kilometers or whatever it is, and just hang out over there with no muktzah, nothing in your pockets, you know, just wait there until it's Yom Tif, and then with your whole family make the trek back up to your and back home, and then do the Seder. I mean, that's a huge um, in, inconvenience and undertaking, and as you can imagine, there were many people who do not live up to that. And again, in my mind, it was always clear the Rebbe had this instruction, Herod, that you have to do it. From reading the Sikha and the letters, it doesn't seem like the Rebbe was saying, one must do this. The Rebbe was suggesting, again, I, I don't want to say this authoritatively because, you know, I have to ask to do, to do some more research perhaps, but it seems like the Rebbe was making a suggestion of an appropriate Khumra. Not something that absolutely um, must be done. Um, and then um, for Pesach Sheni, it was less of a big deal because usually Pesach Sheni is the middle of the week. But the, he says he remembers he was talking here that to one of the people who lived in Yerushalayim at the time, and he says he remembers that one year that his father, he's speaking here to Rabbi Sholemberg Cohen, who lives in Nachla, that's in uh, Kiryat Malachi, but his father, lived in so he said from the, for those few years, his father always came to him for Pesach. But for Pesach Sheni, so he just left Yerushalayim for the day. But he says he remembers one time Pesach Sheni fell on Friday, and he says he remembers his father got ready for Shabbos in the morning on Friday and took the bus down to Meitzad, just outside Yerushalayim, and he waited there um, until Shabbos, and then he walked back home. You know, so interesting history. But again, I think sometimes people misunderstand and think that the Rebbe was saying that one can bring Karim Pesach nowadays. The Rebbe was not saying that at all. 
the Rebbe was saying that one may not bring Karm Pesach nowadays, but just in order to, because it's such a strict prohibition of Karis. And there is this opinion, so we might as well um, do that Chumrah to leave Yerushalayim to be Cheshush for that Shittah. Now, the again, like I mentioned, the very fascinating correspondence, very long and interesting letter between the Rebbe, from Rabbi Zevin to the Rebbe and back, and the vast bulk of the letter is um, discussing whether or not this whole concept of leaving Yerushalayim is relevant to Pesach Sheni or only to the first Pesach. And like I said, when the Rebbe spoke about it, he was just talking about Pesach Sheni. He wasn't even talking about Pesach. And Rabbi Zevin was like, oh, why only Pesach Sheni? And the Rebbe said, no, I mean Pesach too. Why the Rebbe chose to speak about it, Anachim Shal Pesach and not before Pesach, I don't know. Um, but that's the bulk of that letter is getting into the intricacies of the Gemaras and the Rambams, etc., to determine whether or not Derech being outside of the walls of Yerushalayim um, is relevant to Pesach Sheni only to the first Pesach, and perhaps we will take a chance one day to learn that letter in depth. Thank you all for joining.